Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, when Florida passed an amendment to return the right to vote to people who had served time for felony convictions, that was part of a history in this country of expanding the franchise to ensure that those who are affected by government have a say in shaping it. When some Republicans then insisted that before any of those ex-felons could exercise their right to vote, they had to pay off any and all court fines, fees, and restitution, that too partook of a tradition of switching up brutal for bureaucratic means to bar the inclusion of marginalized populations in the polity. A circuit court just denied that GOP effort in Florida, just as folks aren't buying that Georgia Republicans want to cut Sunday voting over concerns about separating church and state, or that Republicans in Texas are really torn up over the integrity of identification, given that they accept gun licenses but not college student IDs. Corporate media may report shenanigans when they occur, but when it comes to voter suppression, the pattern is the point. And maybe some recognition that the fight is less between parties than between democracy and its demonstrated opponents. We'll speak with Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of, among other titles, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. One imagines Chris Matthews was obliged by something other than human decency to apologize on air for comparing Bernie Sanders' victory in Nevada caucuses to the Nazi invasion of France. The question remains whether that's a cat you can really put back in the bag. Are MSNBC viewers meant to believe that Matthews' comments going forward are those of a thoughtful journalist doing responsible work? It's really not clear whether elite media know how vividly their election coverage is showing their hand. Despite day after day of reporting on hunger, homelessness, insulin rationing, children in cages, and devastating war, they are vehemently opposed to meaningful social change, even as relatively unradical, never mind overwhelmingly popular, as that represented by Senator Sanders. And they express that opposition through embarrassing journalistic choices. Like MSNBC platforming Bill Clinton advisor James Carville's rant, mocking the value of increasing voter turnout. The entire theory that by expanding the electorate, increasing turnout, you can win an election is the equivalent of climate denier, Carville said, adding, People say that they're as stupid to a political scientist as a climate denier is to an atmospheric scientist. That's just a fact. There's no denying it. Well, there is, of course. Turnout has varied over the last five presidential elections from a low of 50.3% in 2000 to a high of 58.2% in 2008, a difference of some 25 million votes, far more than the popular vote margin even in a relative landslide like 2008. But Carville impressed MSNBC host Nicole Wallace, who replied, You're describing what sounds a lot like political suicide. I think we need a psychologist to understand that. 
Washington Post editorial page editor Fred Hyatt allotted himself some space to advance the idea that both Sanders and Donald Trump, quote, reject the reality of climate change, close quote. Yeah, see, Trump does that by rejecting the reality of climate change. But Sanders is Trump's mirror image in utter unseriousness because of the fantasy extremism of his climate plan, because, for example, it would ban fracking. Hyatt's sole source for his critique of Sanders' climate plan, incredibly enough, is an oil company CEO who offers such disinterested wisdom as change will not come from changing the source of supply. You have to reduce demand. Well, you might wonder how far elite media will carry their reporting distorting disaffection. Chris Matthews gives a clue. I'm wondering if Democratic moderates want Bernie Sanders to be president, he mused recently. Quote, do they want Bernie to take over the Democratic Party in perpetuity? Maybe they'd rather wait four years and put in a Democrat that they like. Close quote. Get it? After four more years of Donald Trump... Democratic voters will settle for anyone who's not Trump, like party and media elites think they ought to. Those harmed in the meantime are not, it seems, part of the equation. And finally, and briefly, last May, the New York Times noted that, quote, though Julian Assange is not a conventional journalist, much of what he does at WikiLeaks is difficult to distinguish in a legally meaningful way from what traditional news organizations do. Close quote. You'd think then that the Times and others would be showing more interest in Assange's extradition hearing. Blogger Craig Murray has been in one of the 16 seats made available to the public, and his reports are eye-opening indeed on the political nature of the prosecution and the abusive process. There's a lot at stake for journalists and journalism. It's not clear if elite U.S. media don't want to see that or say it, or neither. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weyrich's statement at that Ronald Reagan rally in 1980, quote, I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people, close quote, is as clear a picture as one needs that voter suppression is seen by many powerful Republicans as a legitimate tool for moving the country in the direction they choose. Taken seriously, this goes beyond partisanship, upending decades of what many understood to be the country's driving political project, the expansion of participation in the democratic process. If only ever thinly veiled, Republican voter suppression is out of the bag now, as, in the wake of a disastrous Supreme Court decision, state after state moves to commit what our guest calls bureaucratic violence against overwhelmingly black, brown, and low-income communities seeking to exercise their fundamental rights. Corporate media have got just beyond balancing evidence of voter suppression with spurious claims of voter fraud, but perhaps not so far as drawing a coherent picture of the overall suppressive project, so that each particular iteration, an ID requirement here, an inaccessible polling place there, can be understood in context. 
Such a vision would make even more clear that what's at stake in 2020 goes well beyond the White House. Here to help us see what's going on is Carol Anderson, Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author of, among other titles, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and most recently, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, out now from Bloomsbury. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Carol Anderson. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, for many people, democracy is just the label you put on the U.S. because of the mechanism of voting. But democracy making is ongoing work. I wonder, could you just talk about what you see when you look around the current landscape that represents what you've called bureaucratic violence on folks' right to vote? Absolutely. And that bureaucratic violence, uh, I use that term because when we often think about disfranchisement, we think about it in terms of like the violence on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in 1965. But bureaucratic violence, that's the array of policies that have been pulled together to figure out how do we get around the 15th Amendment while targeting those that the 15th Amendment was designed to protect. The 15th Amendment of the Constitution says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And what we saw originally was the Mississippi Plan of 1890 that figured out how to get around it with poll taxes and literacy tests. What we're seeing now is what I'm calling Jim Crow 2.0, for want of a better term, are these states doing things like voter ID laws and poll closures and voter roll purges. And all of these things have the aura of trying to protect democracy, trying to protect the integrity of the ballot box. But one, it's based on the lie of massive rampant voter fraud. And when I say lie, I mean that Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, found that between 2000 and 2014, there were, there were a billion votes cast in elections, and there were only 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud out of one billion votes. So that's the lie of massive rampant voter fraud, about two cases per year. But from that, we get the kind of voter IDs laws that say, oh, everybody's got an ID. But what these state legislatures have done is to identify the types of IDs that whites have, that African-Americans don't have, that Latinos don't have, that Native Americans don't have, and then to privilege the ones that whites have, while making it seem fair and across the board. In fact, it is anything but. It is what led the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina to say that the North Carolina state legislature had targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision with its array of laws, including those voter ID laws. And what we're seeing as well are voter roll purges. We saw in Ohio another massive purge of several hundred thousand. And because that list was made public, it had a 20% error rate, at least, on there, including the head of the League of Women Voters. 
I mean, these targeted hits, the voter roll purges, what they're designed to do, again, it's supposed to sound reasonable. You've got to keep the voter rolls cleaned up. So if people die, they shouldn't be on the list. If people move out of state, they shouldn't be on the list. We get that. But what these states have done is to target people that they say haven't voted regularly. Although the National Voter Registration Act, uh, the Motor Voter Law of 1993, specifically says you cannot remove people simply because they haven't voted. You don't lose your right to vote simply because you haven't voted. But that's what these states have done. And the U.S. Supreme Court last year in June approved that because this is the same Supreme Court that gave us the Shelby County v. Holder decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act. So there are an array of policies, including poll closures, because we know the further you remove a polling place, for instance, from the black community, voter turnout goes down because it has to deal with distance and access to transportation. So if you make the polling place inaccessible, so here in Georgia, for instance, They tried to move the polling place for the black community in Sparta 17 miles away. That's inaccessible on a work day. (laughs) And all these things are kind of wrapped, you say, wrapped in the veneer of law. So if you're not paying attention, you can almost think it makes sense. Oh, we're not saying they can't vote because they're black. We're saying they don't have the right form. You know, it's not because they're young. It's because they can't show residency. You know, it's, it's not that they have a disability. It's that we can't get a polling place in that particular thing. It's always just that one level of indirect that, that you know, they think they're fooling you that it's not targeted in some way. Exactly. And, and because it's what I call this bureaucratic violence, we don't see it. And so it doesn't create the sense of urgency. But from 2014 to 2016, the Brennan Center identified that 16 million Americans were purged from the voter rolls. 16 million. That is that silent civic death. Well, in your piece from last November in The Guardian, The Five Ways Republicans Will Crack Down on Voting Rights in 2020, you also list judges and the role of the courts because they've got a role to play here, too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, for instance, is that the U.S. Senate has been confirming these right-wing judges who cannot even get their mouths fixed to say that the Brown decision (laughs) um, was appropriately adjudicated, appropriately decided. These are judges who do not believe in civil rights. These are judges who do not believe in voting rights. These are the judges who do not believe in environmental rights. These are the judges who do not believe in women's rights. And the Republicans in the Senate have been pushing these judges through with no real vetting whatsoever. So several have gone through, more than ever before, that the American Bar Association has ruled as being unqualified. And so we have unqualified federal judges with lifetime appointments on the bench. And so what happens then is as these cases, uh, civil society, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, they have been suing these states for these voter suppression laws and how discriminatory they are. But 
as these cases go up, they're hitting these judges, these judges who do not believe in voting rights. (laughs) And that is why this election in 2020 is so crucial, because if we have a federal judiciary just loaded down with those who do not believe in basic civil rights, who do not believe in the rights guaranteed in the Constitution, then we are going to be back to where we were after Reconstruction when that Supreme Court basically gutted the 14th and 15th Amendments and skewered the 13th Amendment that has badges of servitude. And it took about 100 years in the civil rights movement to undo the damage coming out of Reconstruction with, with that Supreme Court. And that's where we are headed again unless we stop it. Well, one review said that one person, no vote, seems to have been written from a state of emergency. That sounds like a fair assessment and like an appropriate one. Let's talk a bit about resistance. As you note in the book, there is, well, first of all, there's awareness. Not everyone is falling for this protecting the integrity of the process line. But also there's resistance and some states even pushing back and making it easier to vote, right? That's happening too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the resistance, I mean, you're getting incredible organizing in local communities. You're seeing organizations, like I've mentioned before, as well as Fair Fight, in there, mobilizing, organizing, suing. And you do have states that have the leadership that actually believes in democracy. So they are doing same-day voter registration. They are doing automatic voter registration. They are, in California, one of the things that they did in California, following Oregon's lead, what California did was to say, yes, we're going to do automatic voter registration, but we're going to also pre-register 16- and Mm 17-year-olds so that when they turn 18, they are automatically registered to vote. I mean, this broadening of the electorate, this sense that American citizens are engaged, invested in this nation, that is not a bad thing. Right. But when you have a platform, like, and I love the Paul Weirich quote that you used, when he says, oh, you know, all of you goo-goo folks, you believe in good government. Well, I don't, because I don't want everybody to vote, because frankly, our leverage goes up when the voting population goes down. So you have a number of states moving in one direction and a number of states moving in the other. One of the things that we saw in 2018, for instance, were a series of ballot initiatives, citizen-led ballot initiatives. For the one in Florida, for instance, that Florida had permanent felony disfranchisement for all intents and purposes. So you had 1.7 million people in Florida who could not vote because they had a felony conviction. And this is after they have served their time, they have paid their debt to society, and they were suffering what is called civic death. And the citizens got together, and I think something like 65% voted for Amendment 4 that provided a pathway for the right to vote for 1.4 million of those returning citizens. That is 
amazing and incredible. And of course, the Republican legislature and Republican governor have worked really hard to undermine that citizens initiative. In Michigan, you had a ballot initiative to have a nonpartisan redistricting commission to get rid of the extreme partisan gerrymandered districts and to realize that extreme partisan gerrymandering where you end up with these really weird, drawn congressional districts that are designed to create additional power in one set of communities and diminish the power in another and said, no, this is about one person, one vote. This is about equal representation. And this is the thing that that I think consistently gets missed. Americans will fight back. And that's what we're seeing here. Well, you write in White Rage about the Chicago Defender, the black newspaper that was crucial in the great migration of black people from the south to the north. And your piece in The Washington Post in the summer of 2014, I think, reoriented countless readers' understanding of events in Ferguson and elsewhere from black protest to white rage. Dick Durbin made Senate Democrats read that uh, essay, I understand, and had you address their conference. Media can be powerful for good and ill. What do you see as the actual or potential role for journalism with regard to this issue of voter suppression? What could they be doing more of or less of or none of? I think they need to understand the patterns because this isn't just this one thing of, oh, there weren't enough voting machines in Gwinnett County. The lines were four and a half hours long uh, because somebody forgot the power cords, or they were long in Fulton County because there were four machines and there should have been 20. Right. But to see the overall pattern and continuing to hammer it home about what is at stake in this democracy. It requires good investigative journalism. It requires going beyond the soundbite. It requires a clarion call. This nation is in danger. When you think about the efforts that it's taken in 2016, one of the things that led, for instance, to me writing One Person, No Vote, was after the election in 2016, there were too many pundits, too many newspapers, too many outlets saying, well, you know, black people just didn't show up, (laughs) you know, because they weren't filling Hillary. She Mm -hmm. just doesn't have the magic of Obama, and they just stayed home. And that inability to connect at least two dots, Mm -hmm. that this was the first election, presidential election in 50 years, without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And that we had a slew of voter ID laws, poll closures, voter roll purges that contributed greatly to that. That's what we need, the ability to think critically, connect the dots, do the work, sound the clarion call. I think sometimes media make it seem partisan. They're so used to that Republican versus Democrat frame, you know, that even when you hear a Republican say, we don't want certain people to vote, well, they don't want an an election that includes those folks because they don't want a politics that includes those folks. And I don't even see media, you know, saying This is what they want, is to exclude certain people from the whole 
society, from the whole decision-making process. It's not like, oh, they just want to win this one election this one time. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, is that what we should understand in a democracy is that you lay out your policies, you lay out your plans, you lay out your program, your platform. And if it resonates with the people, then you win the election. When your policies don't resonate, then there's something wrong with your policies. But when the Republicans looked up and saw that the further they moved to the right, the further they were away from Americans wanting, for instance, I mean, you look at the polls, Americans want to have access to quality health care. Americans want to have semi-automatic military-grade weaponry out of the hands of civilians. Americans want strong, effective responses to climate change and environmental degradation. And we haven't got any movement on that because those constituencies have been electorally silenced. Well, let me just ask, finally, part of moving forward involves vision. In the U.S. on race, of course, that has to include understanding history and the past that isn't even past. But I like where you talk about imagining, you know, imagine Mm. if Reconstruction had actually honored the citizenship of four million freed people. Imagine if Brown versus Board of Ed were really honored. I mean, keeping our eyes on the prize is more than a slogan. It's actually a political requirement, right, to have a vision of where we want to go. Exactly. Knowing where we want to go, and that is a broad, inclusive, vibrant democracy. It will get noisy, (laughs) and that's okay. But as long as we're moving forward, thinking about how we honor our children, how we honor our communities, how we honor the rights of all of us, citizens and immigrants, how we do this work, how do we make this place better, when that's the vision, oh, oh. And when you think about it, when the U.S. does its kind of history thing, the moments that it's proudest of is when it has stood up against oppression and tyranny. So why not make that not so episodic? Why not make that the long-term theme? We've been speaking with Carol Anderson, Charles Howard Candler, professor of African-American studies at Emory University. Her books include White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and most recently, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. That's out now from Bloomsbury. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Oh, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. You can find out more information on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.